Chris has a funny IQ check to one. Uh, you guys might not think it's funny. You might just think I'm dull. Jude, Jude, I almost said it there. Jude verses 24 and 25 is going to be our text. Uh, since it's such a short book, we're going to go ahead and read the whole thing, if that's okay. Uh, starting in verse 1. Jude, right before Revelation, we've been spending a lot of time in Revelation, so your Bible might just fall open there. And just turn back a few pages and you'll, you'll find it. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are who are the called, beloved, and God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you, appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints, where certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe, and angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Yet in the same way, these men also by dreaming defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic man majesties. But Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these men revile the things which they do not understand, and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, by these things they are destroyed. Woe to them! For they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the air of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are the men who are hidden reefs in your, own, in your love feasts when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up their own shame like foam. Wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these men that Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers finding fault. Following after their own lusts, they speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you, and the last time there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building up you're building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. 
and have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire, and on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this book. Uh, Lord, I'm grateful to be able to, to uh, preach this passage today. I ask that you would, Lord, give me the, the words to say, the right things to say. Help us to be good listeners, Lord, and uh, doers of, of what we hear. In your name we pray. Amen. Now we're going to, our text is 24 and 25, verses 24 and 25, as I said, but as a short, as it's a short book, what I want to do is just take a few minutes and sort of take us, take us through and sort of get the context of where 24 and 25 are at. They're at the very end, so we just want to go through the book in a summary fashion, and I, I have to restrain myself even as I, as we do this, because this book is so packed, there's, there's multiple messages in here. And uh, so, so we're going to do it in a summary fashion. I'm probably going to skip over some things you want answered and, and um, touch on some things that you want uh, explained more fully. We, just, we, we don't have the time. So we're, we're going to do this in a summary fashion. That's all right. You'll notice in verse 1 that, that uh, the author refers to himself. He names himself as Jude, uh, the brother of James. Now, it's worth noting that he's not only half the uh, brother of James, he's also the half-brother of Jesus as well. This is a man who we know from the Gospels at one point denied Jesus was who he said he was. It says in the book of John that they, the, his brothers were not believing him. So this is a man who denied this very man, this, this very God man he's writing about here at one point. And it's interesting, too. It shows it, it, you, you would almost expect him as he announces who he is, he introduces himself to say, I, I'm Jude, uh, half-brother of Jesus, right? I mean, you might expect him to say that. Maybe it'll lend a little weight to what he's about to say. But one commentary I was reading, they made this excellent point that when Jesus died on the cross and, and rose from the grave and ascended into heaven, everything changed, right? Everything changed. He wouldn't dare call himself a brother of this man who, who was God, and now he knew that. Shows a great deal of humility and understanding that he, he calls himself the brother of James and not brother of Jesus. Unlike many New Testament letters, especially those of Paul, this, this book isn't directed to one, uh, one body of believers, one church, one specific group of people. Rather, it's, it's a, he addresses these remarks to all believers. He uses that term in verse 1 to, to the called in reference to believers in general, those beloved by God and kept secure by him for his son Jesus Christ. So we know Jude's writing a message here to all believers but what was his reason for writing? Why is he doing this? He tells us in verse 3, he, he says first, I made every effort to write to you about our common salvation. This is what he wanted to write about. He wanted to write about their common salvation. Immediately I think of the book of Romans, which was written sometime before the book of Jude, which is really a book about our common salvation. We were studying that on Wednesday night. But that's what, that's what Jude wanted to write, to write. He wanted to write about this common salvation. So it's fair to say that the necessity that Jude felt to write about what he's going to, to write about had to be a prompting of the Holy Spirit. I mean, the, the Spirit just impressed, had to have impressed on him that this is what you must write about, something other than our com, uh, common salvation. 
he makes uh, an, an important point here, and that is about about this faith. He says about our about our common salvation, our faith, that the readers are contend for, and that is this: that it was once for all handed down to the saints. This is not um, some amorphous faith that hasn't found shape, that's still finding its form, that has yet to be firmly established what exactly it believes. This is a faith that was given once for all, definitively, and it's worth being defended. And verse 4, Jude tells his readers that it's necessary to contend for the faith because unknown to these people that he's writing to, certainly it's not unknown to God, but unknown to these people, that some, some men had crept in. Some men had crept into the church, ungodly men who were perverting the faith and denying the very foundation of the faith, which was Jesus Christ. In verses 5 to 7, Jude establishes God's position regarding these, these current unbelieving apostates by showing how he has judged apostasy and those who rejected his authority in the past. He goes on to describe these apostates in verses 18 through 8 through 13 as perverse and rebellious. And in verses 12 to 13, I just love those verses. He gives these very vivid word pictures of, of these false teachers, these false prophets, these apostates. He calls them clouds without water, autumn trees without fruit, waves of the sea, and wandering stars. And my first, my question is, what, what do all these have in common? They're useless, right? There's, there's nothing to be gained from them. Clouds that don't provide rain, trees that provide fruit, trees that provide no sustenance, waves contribute only to erosion and destruction, and wandering stars provide no guidance. Jude then explains how the existence of these apostates and their destruction was foretold in the Old Testament by Enoch. And again, there's a lot that could be said there about that whole reference to Enoch. We're going to just keep on moving. After describing God's stance to these men, showing how they will act and telling the readers that their existence and their destruction was foretold, Jude details the expected response of the reader, in this case of the listener. He says first in verses 17 to 19 that they are to remember what the apostles said. They said that these mockers were coming, that they would create division, that they would have a secular worldview, and that they would not have the spirit of God. Now, it's important to note this. This warning that Jude gives about these, these apostates, these false teachers, this isn't unique to him. Right, this, this is throughout the New Testament. Turn, if, if, you, if you will, to, to Acts 20, Acts chapter 20. We're going to look at verses 28 to 30. And this is, this is part of this emotional farewell that, that Paul, when Paul was leaving the, the believers in Ephesus, and in these verses in Acts 28, 20, 28 through 30, Paul says this, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. And 2 Peter 2.1, which, which uh, 2 Peter, especially 2.1 and following, is really a companion to the book of Jude. Peter gives a similar warning. 2 Peter 2.1, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. 
bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Sounds familiar, right? As we just read through Jude, that sounds familiar? It's believed also that the, the entire book of 1 John was written by John in response to some pre-Gnostic heresy that was creeping into the church. So you see, Jude's not alone. There's this cacophony of voices echoing this warning to, to beware of false prophets, to beware of false teachers because they're coming. This, this, the weight of all these warnings should give us some, uh, some insight into the seriousness and the importance of this message that Jude is preaching in this book. So after he reminds readers of the inevitability of the false teachers, Jude details their responsibility in light of this information. And, and there, this guys, there's a part of me that just wants to take off and preach these next four verses, uh, verses 20 through 23, because there's, there's so much of importance here. But in verses 20 to 21, the readers are told this. They're told to build themselves up in the faith, to pray, and to keep themselves in the love of God. And then in verses 22 to 23, he tells them to exercise mercy on the doubting, to do everything they can to prevent others from going astray. So what we have in these four verses, in verses 20 to 23, a clear statement of personal responsibility, right, for ourselves, but not just for ourselves, but also for others. And it's indicated by these four imperatives, keep yourselves in verse 21, save, uh, have mercy in verse 22, save others in verse 23 and have mercy with fear all of those are imperative commands that, that we must do those aren't optional again that's another sermon maybe next time I'll preach that it seems unnecessary to say this uh, i'm gonna say it anyway jude's laid down a, a pretty heavy message in his book so far these false teachers are coming there's no he doesn't say they may come they're coming they're here and he's he's given this a pretty severe diagnosis He'd obviously worked pretty hard, we know back in, in verse 3, to, to write a letter about their common salvation. That's what he wanted to do. And he was moved by the Holy Spirit to throw that work aside, and he never picked it up again, as far as we know. And it's, it wasn't picked up and included in the canon of Scripture. He did that because the situation was so dire. What Jude wrote here is happening. It's happening during the writing of this book, and it's continuing to happen in our day. His diagnosis is sure, and it's very bad news, right? He's given bad news about these apostates. Imagine, um, and if you've been in a circumstance, I'm not making light of it, by the way. Uh, imagine going to the doctor, maybe you're having some chest pains. Uh, so you go to the doctor, as you should, if that happens, chest pains, shortness of breath. And they run a million different tests on you, right? They, they poke you with a bunch of needles. They take uh, probably every last bit of blood you have. And then your doctor, your cardiologist comes in the room, you're sitting there, you're waiting for the, you're waiting for the uh, diagnosis, and he says, your cholesterol is very high, the bad kind, right? The good kind's low, which should be high. This is causing a buildup in your arteries, right? They're not breaking any, any new ground here telling you guys this. It's building up in your arteries, and that buildup is going to cause a major heart attack, and that heart attack's going to kill you. He gives you that diagnosis, and he walks out of the room. That's all he says. Just gives a diagnosis. Walks out of the room. You sit there, head down, dejected, hopeless, probably scared. That's not the way a good doctor would behave, right? Would a good doctor do that? Leave you sitting there with, with, no, with no prescription? Many of them may, but that's not the way a good doctor would, would uh, behave. He would almost certainly give you a prescription, right? He would say, uh, the situation's bad. Uh, change your diet. 
here's some cholesterol blocker, some medication you could take. Perhaps uh, surgery that may or may not be fairly minor. If you, if you do these things, your health is going to improve. There's no reason why you can't live a good life. That's what a good doctor would do. He would give you a prescription, a prescription to, to solve the problem or alleviate the problem. Jude, like that good doctor, right, not like the bad one, he doesn't leave his readers feeling hopeless under the weight of this negative diagnosis. He doesn't leave them feeling hopeless under the weight of this is what's happening and you must do this, and that's the end of the letter. He's given a sure diagnosis. There will be apostates. And they will be hiding among those who are truly in the body of Christ. And he's reminded us, the reader, of our responsibility. We, we are not to be passive in this. We're, we're to contend. We're to fight. And he's, he's laid on his reader, and, and, and by extension, he's laid on us a pretty heavy weight, right? If this is coming. You must contend. You must do these things. So the question then is, how, how could they and how could we stand against those bent on elevating themselves and hurting the church? How can we do that? He doesn't leave them in verse 23 to fight on the strength of their own ability, to contend on the strength of their own resources. He gives the prescription for victory in verses 24 and 25. The command of Jude to, to the ancient readers of his epistle, it echoes to us today. We have the same responsibility to, to contend for the faith. And just as his his command and our responsibility echoes down to us from from the ancient past so does this prescription for victory in verses 24 to 25 we finally get to our text this morning Jude concludes his letter with what we call a doxology let's read those last two verses together again it says now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Our word doxology comes from two Greek words. The word doxa, which means praise or glory, and logos, that was for Stephen. Logos, which means word. So this means a word of praise to God. So what, what Jude is providing here in these two verses is a declaration of praise to God. And it's in this doxology, this declaration of praise to God that Jude explains where the ultimate promise of victory lies. So if the book did end at verse 23, we might be led to believe what? That victory in, in, this, in contending for the faith is dependent on our effort. And that would be bad news for all of us. Even, even the most stalwart Christian in this room, it would be bad news for you, whoever you are. It would be bad news. Verses 24 and 25 will show us that while we must contend for the faith. Our sure hope of victory is not in ourselves, but in the God for whom we are contending. And his commentary on Jude, D. Edmund Hebert, uh, says this regarding this particular doxology, and there are several of them throughout the New Testament. He says this, it is rightly acclaimed as one of the grandest in the New Testament. It is the fitting capstone of the epistle, eloquently reminding his troubled readers that their true security lies in the sovereign power of God. In these verses, Jude gives us two truths that assure our victory in contending for the faith. The first truth that Jude gives to provide assurance of victory is this. You must depend upon God's ability for victory. You must depend upon God's ability for victory. Jude spent the first 23 verses of this letter laying out the frightening truth of apostasy and our response to it. 
And he opens up this doxology with these most perfect words, to him who is able. With these five words, Jude presents the foundation of our hope for victory. It's solely in God's ability. Now, this theme of God's ability, it's not unique to Jude. It's a theme that runs throughout Scripture. And let's just take a second to look at a few of these verses. Acts, back to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. Verse 32 says, And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Turn forward a few pages. Romans chapter 16. Romans chapter 16, verse 25. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past. Out of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. And finally, Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So he's able to build you up. He's able to establish you according to the gospel. He's able to come to your aid. He is able to save. And that's just a, that's just a brief look at, at some other places where this, this concept or this idea of God's ability is taught. Now, now we, never, we never want to be guilty of attempting to negate our responsibility. Jude conveys that clearly, right, in verses 20 to 23. But the greatest news ever is this. Success isn't dependent on our ability. It's not dependent on us. It's dependent upon God's ability. In verse 24, we're told that God's ability guarantees victory, first, because he alone is able to keep you, and second, because he alone is able to make you stand. So first, you must depend upon God's ability for victory because he alone is able to keep you. The English word keep is used three times in the book of Jude. In verse 6, the words used in reference to angels who did not keep their own domain. And in verse 21, Jude says, keep yourselves in the love of God. Both times keep is used there. It's, it's a Greek word, tereo, which has the idea of causing a state to continue. However, the word translated keep here in verse 24 is a different word. It's a word, philoso, which has the meaning of guarding, protecting, or preventing from being snatched away. And when I studied for this, when I hit this word, when I, when I read those ideas, immediately I thought of my kids, right? You guys all know we have six of them, have six children. They're often at the front of my mind. I think about them all the time. Anytime they're outside the house, and by the way, anytime they're outside of the house, whether it's the backyard or walking to the, walking to the mailbox to check the mail, uh, getting in the van when we leave the house, uh, walking with us in the store, I'm, I'm constantly doing this, one, two, three, four, five, six, one, two, three, four, five, six doing it all the time, constantly doing a head count, wanting to know where each one of them is, making sure they're all within range, right? Having an awareness of where they're at. And not only that, I'm always looking around them, we're in a place, maybe we don't know everybody, making sure there's nobody who looks sketchy, 
that's around them, maybe like maybe me with my beard, uh, maybe making sure nobody weird is around them, somebody I don't know, always, always watching them in parking lots. As they're walking to a parking lot looking for backup lights or cars driving too fast, I'm always protecting them as best I can. This is the idea of philosophy. This is how God keeps. The difference is God does so omnisciently. He does so perfectly. He's always on guard. He's always keeping. He is always preventing us from being snatched away. But what is it that he's keeping us from? What, what is he guarding us from? What is he philosophizing? I know that's bad Greek, right, Stephen? Us from. He's perfectly guarding us from stumbling. This keeping talked about here does not mean, by the way, that he keeps us sinless. Right? That's good news, right? I know that's not something I have to tell you. It doesn't mean he keeps us sinless. Otherwise, we wouldn't need the, the advocate that's mentioned in 1 John 2, right? We're going to sin. It doesn't mean that. But it means that he alone is responsible for maintaining what we call our eternal security. He's able to guard us from falling away finally and forever. The verbal form of the word used here for stumbling is also used, by the way, in 2 Peter 1.10, sort of established briefly that that's a companion epistle. Peter says, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. You see then that you must depend upon God's ability because he alone is able to keep you first and second because he alone is able to make you stand. Jude first presents the case negatively, right? He's going to keep you from doing something bad, right? He's going to keep you from falling away. He's going to keep you from stumbling. In other words, he's able to prevent the unthinkable from happening. He's able to present us, prevent us from falling away. But here in the second half, verse 24, he presents the case positively. He alone is able to make you stand. Specifically, he is able to make us stand in God's presence. How is this possible, though? How can we, sinners that we are, be allowed to stand in the presence of a holy and perfect God? We will be made to stand before him because he will cause us to be blameless. And this is the promise we have from 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, which says this, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And the day that we're made perfect before God and are caused to stand rejoicing, as Jude says here, in his presence not even Satan himself will be able to bring a charge against us. Revelation 12:10. Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, he who accuses them before God day and night. This may, in your mind, bring up another question. How is this accomplished? How and why are we caused to be blameless before God? Let's look briefly for just a minute at 2 Corinthians 5.21, and you can turn there. You don't have to. I'll read it to you. But 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, says this. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. There are three amazing foundational theological truths that are found in this verse and explain how it is that we're blameless or can be blameless before God. There's a truth of substitution that says he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. He substituted. God substituted the one who was perfect for us. 
he made him to be sin for us. Secondly, we see the truth of justification. We are declared righteous. Finally, we see that even beyond being declared righteous, being justified, we receive the very righteousness of God. This is an important theological truth called imputation. And again, a whole sermon there, or a few sermons, just touching on it briefly. Imputation, that means God gives us his righteousness. He puts righteousness in us, his own. Unbelievable, right? So according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, we are blameless before God because of these truths of substitution, justification, and imputation. This begs a question. Are you blameless? Have you ever repented of your sin? Acknowledged, as Romans 10 tells us, that Christ is Lord over your life? Believe that he he died on the cross and raised from the dead? That's the only way you will be presented blameless. If that, if that is a foreign idea to you, I, I beg you, I beg you, repent of your sin today. Acknowledge Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior. And you too have this promise of being presented blameless before Christ. In verse 24 of the doxology, then Jude gives us his first very important truth that God's ability assures our victory in contending for the faith by keeping us from falling away and by making us stand blameless before God. The second truth Jude gives to provide assurance is this, you must depend upon God's nature for victory in contending for the faith. God's nature assures our victory because he alone is God, he alone is our Savior, he alone is worthy, and he alone is eternal. Jude's description there in verse 25 of God as the only God accomplishes two purposes, in this, two purposes in this verse. First of all, he solidifies in our minds who he's referring to back in verse 24, right? Probably no question in this room, but it, it does establish that, right? To him who is able, well, that to him is the only God. Second, he affirms the Jewish understanding of a monotheistic God as opposed to the polytheistic beliefs rife in Gentile culture. The clear statement of the Old Testament in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and it affirms the truth that there is only one true God. Jude's statement that God is the one true sovereign assures us that he is able to make us victorious. We are dependent on God's nature for victory also because he alone is our Savior through Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, we're told that Jesus will save his people from their sins. And throughout the New Testament, we see God described as our Savior. Let's take a second just to look at a few verses. First Timothy, turn back to First Timothy. Chapter 1, verse 1, Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus according to the commandment of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus who is our hope. Over in, in chapter 2 and verse 3, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. I'll flip over just a couple letters to Titus. Titus chapter 2 and verse 13. looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. 
And finally, 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 1. To those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I may have given you the wrong. No, I give you the right verse. What's the link found in all these verses? God is our Savior. Our Savior is Jesus Christ. It's a clear affirmation of the deity of Christ. So we see that the identity of God as the only Savior through Jesus Christ, his Son, gives us assurance of our victory. We can also depend upon the nature of God for assurance of our victory and contending for the faith because he alone is worthy, worthy of glory, worthy of majesty, worthy of dominion, and worthy of authority. God's glory and majesty are uh, related to him as, and his divinity and his dominion and authority are related to him as ruler. David speaks of God's glory and majesty in the first part of First uh, Chronicles 29.11. I always want to say 1 Chronicles because I want to sound like one of those cool, uh, those cool British or Irish preachers. First Chronicles 29.11. One of these days I'm going to do it. When he says this, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty, indeed everything that is in the heavens and the earth. For God to do anything less, anything less than assure the victory of his own would do harm to his glory and majesty. And that's something he simply cannot allow. He also has all dominion and authority, a sovereign ruler over all the earth, ensuring that his purposes will come to pass. This absolute power described by Jude as dominion and authority assures his direction and control over everything. He will have the ultimate victory in the conflict with evil. In our family, we've been working through a, a catechism. And if you don't have kids yet, listen to this. If you have kids and you don't do this, maybe you think about it. Maybe it sounds a little Catholic to you. I don't know. But a catechism is a wonderful tool for just teaching truth to your children. I believe that. We use a Baptist catechism that was edited by John Piper. And one of the questions is, what are the decrees of God? It's fun when you do these, by the way, and have to explain a lot of words to your kids because there's some big words in there. An answer to that question, what are the decrees of God, is this. The decrees of God are his eternal purpose according to the counsel of his will, whereby for his own glory he has foreordained whatever comes to pass. When Jude states that to God are dominion and authority, this is what he means. Whatever God intends most certainly will come to pass. Let's look at a, a couple of verses about this. Psalm 115 Psalm 115, verse 3, says this, But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Over to Daniel, chapter 4. Again, this is another book your uh, Bible should probably fall open to if you, if you make it out on Sunday nights. Daniel, chapter 4. Verse 35, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? Isaiah chapter 46, verse 10, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, 
my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Back to the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 1. Verse 11. Also, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. We understand then that because God will have the ultimate victory, so will each of us who are his. We see that we're dependent on the nature of God because he alone is God. He alone is our Savior. He alone is worthy. And finally, at the end of verse 25, because he alone is eternal. Jude states here that the one true God existed before all time, that he exists now, and that he will exist for all time to come. He stands alone. While we have been created for eternity, right, one, one way or the other, we'll live for eternity. We have been created just like every other being, including angels. The writer of Hebrews sums up this point when he says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. This final statement by Jude of God's eternality drives home his infinite ability to keep us and, to further, and it further emphasizes his total and complete charge overall. Jude has written in his letter an urgent warning to ancient readers and to modern believers of this insidious danger, this danger of apostasy. And he's urged them, and by extension us, to contend with all of our might for the faith. But thank God, 24 verses 24 and 25 are there. He didn't leave us without hope. In the last two verses of this short book, Jude laid out exactly what we must depend on for victory. Work, by all means. Contend, it's commanded to do so. Those principles are clear in verses 20 to 23 as we just sort of glossed over those. But, but it is so important that we never, never become de dependent on our own ability. And we are so bent that way. We're so bent to, to start to rely on what we do. George Mueller, he had this to say about personal responsibility. Work with all your might but trust not in the least in your work. In obedience, let's contend, right? That's, that's, that's what we need to do. But we always have to do that in submission to and with the realization that God is the one upon whom we depend. We depend upon his ability and upon his very nature. Now, my, my fear is this. You may hear this message. I may, as I'm hearing this again, this message, we may hear it in pigeonhole it and think this is a truth we'll put in our pocket and whenever we see a heretic, we'll pull this out and we'll, you know, we'll depend on God, right? That, that is my tendency, and I'm just going to go out on a limb and say it's your tendency perhaps too. Here's what we have to understand. The dependence that we've been speaking about, the dependence we have on God is not just dependence upon God to refute error. We're dependent on God for our sanctification. That's what verses 20 and 21 are talking about, by the way. You know, he says, build yourselves up, keep yourselves. That, that's, that's the process of sanctification. The, 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 the process of becoming more like Christ, right? That's what we're dependent on God for. The victorious Christian, the one who's victorious in refuting error in others and in himself or herself, is the one who's 
dependent on God to be continually completing the work which he started in our salvation. So it's, it's, it's dependence on God for yourself, right? For the protection of yourself. And I, I was thinking, I was talking to Caroline about this message last night, and she asked this question, which is a good question. Why, are all these, why were all these authors harping on this idea of apostasy, and, and why was it such a big deal? I recall not too long ago when, when Daniel preached on Acts and he talked about Ananias and Sapphira. And you remember God's most severe dealing with these people. They, they, they told a lie. That was a horrible thing they did. But you agree that the, the punishment, while just, was severe, right? And, and why would he do something like that? And I think, I think Daniel may have covered this, this idea that this was a foundational time in the church's, in the church's life. It had, everything had to be right. You couldn't have any admixture of error in there. If the foundation is laid poorly, it doesn't matter what you build on it. It's going to fall apart. And so it's the same thing at the, at the, at the foundational part. This is, this is at the most 30, 35 years after Christianity had started rolling. This, this, this book was written. This is a foundational time. It's terribly important at the beginning of something that the foundation be laid right. I think that's why Jude and all these authors hammered so hard on this idea of apostasy and, and heretical teaching and anything that differed from what had been handed down to them. And I, I hope I'm not going too far out on a limb here, but I, I couldn't help it. I thought about the foundation of the church. I think about the foundation of our church, right? This is, and we've only, my family and I have not been here very long, but this church hasn't been here for very long. We are in, would you agree, a foundational time in our church? We have a lot of young people in this church, disproportionate compared probably to other congregations. That's a good thing. The energy is great. We have a lot of young people. On top of that, we are a very young church. We are dependent on God to sanctify this body. We are dependent on God to to hold our pastor teacher, Mike, up, to hold Mark up. We're dependent on him for that. We're dependent on him to continue to sanctify us as individual members of this body. This idea of being dependent on God is terribly important for this church. Terribly important that we don't, we don't start to get involved in so many programs and all sorts of things. We forget that we are dependent on God, not ourselves or our own actions. So let me encourage you, depend upon God. as God who will keep you and make you stand without fault before him. Depend upon God. He is the only true sovereign, our Savior, with all glory, majesty, dominion, and authority who reigns forever. And I want to c- conclude, just like Jew did at the end of chapter 25, by saying, so let it be. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time in your word. Lord, anything that I said that was not true to you and not true to your word, would you just erase that from our minds? Lord, and any, anything that, that honored you, that, that uh, was true to your word, will you just impress that upon each of our hearts? Lord, help us to be um, dependent on you, not just in our minds, knowing that is the truth, but in our hearts, realizing our complete and utter dependence on you. Lord, you are the only one who's able to keep us. We can't keep ourselves. You're the only one who can present us blameless. We certainly can't do that ourselves. Lord, I want to ask further, anybody, anybody who's here that has never repented of their sins and turned to you in faith, Anybody here who is who is not Lord, God, would you break their heart? Would you show them their need and help them to, to do that today, to repent and turn to you? In your name we pray, amen.